Okay, so uh, last week we kind of bridged the gap and we moved over from, uh, from the author's um, assertion that the, that the, uh, that Christ and his office is higher than that of Moses and that the one who builds the house has more authority and has a higher standing than the one who labors in the house. So we moved there. The transitional verses were uh, basically Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, which transitioned us into the author's discussion of comparing the, the ministry of Christ as the Messiah uh, to the Levitical priesthood, to the priesthood in Aaron. Now, as I, <coughs> I, w as I was talking to Doug before we began, this would naturally be a struggle when it comes to the issue of the priesthood, this would naturally be a struggle for Jews because Christ did not come from the tribe of Levi, right? And the priesthood was of the tribe of Levi, right? And so this would naturally present a struggle and a dilemma. And the author is right away makes the comparison of the office of the Messiah to a priesthood that was before and higher than the priesthood of Levi, and that is the, the, the priesthood of Melchizedek. And so uh, that's kind of as far as we went, but we see here that the author has to stop, right? He, he feels that he has to stop because the, the recipients of this letter were not ready, in his estimation, to understand the, the high and difficult context concepts that he was about to bring into the discussion concerning the priesthood of Melchizedek. And we see that, um, let me pick that up in verse 11, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, we read, of whom, according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So <coughs> he has to stop here and he, and he issues the third major the third major warning that comes into the book of Hebrews, he has to stop his discussion digging into this concept of the Melchizedekian priesthood and why it is above the priesthood of, of uh, Levi because something had happened in their spiritual walk. Okay, so from there, let's go to the notes. And uh, just by way of introduction, Again, the, the direction and content of Hebrews, they were facing persecution. Many of them were beginning to waver and thinking of taking their faith underground. Mm -hmm. And the exhortation that once having started, there is no turning back. We've talked many times about the Hellenistic struggles uh, dealing with the humanity of Christ. Again, once again, I'll say it, that the law was mediated to the Jews through the angels. Uh, and we see that. And so all of the major events that took place uh, in their history with God took place through the mediation of angels. And so they considered, they struggled with the concept of a human person being higher than that of an angel. They struggled with the concept of Christ's deity, which is why he launched right into that in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. So they had failed to progress spiritually. This is what had happened through fear, through distraction, through apathy. 
Many of these things are still at work today in the Gentile church. We're distracted through fear. We're, distra uh, we're distracted by many things. Mm -hmm. But I would say in our time, the primary motive is apathy. We become apathetic. We become the Laodicean church. We are the Laodicean church, right? We think that we're rich, but we're poor, blind, and naked, right? And that's, that's, that's pretty scary. Okay. So under the symptoms, and we can kind of read between the lines here that the author of Hebrews is experiencing this thing. You know, the workload stress and frustration, frustration and discouragement fa factor ramps up in the life and task of the teacher. Now you'll find that this is true. If anyone here has ever been involved in any kind of teaching ministry, that this is something that every teacher has to struggle with, right? Because you do, as a teacher, you, as, now I'm not saying all teachers are called by God, right? There are clearly some people teaching the Bible who are not called to be Bible teachers, very clearly, right? And so, but those who are called to, those who are called to teach the Bible, they pour their heart and soul into what they teach. And they don't do it because they're, they want recognition. They don't do it because they're doing it for money. They're doing it because they have a genuine commitment to the call that God has placed upon their life to strengthen the body, right? And when the body takes an attitude of apathy or distraction or fear and, you know, the teacher has to stop moving forward because they're not ready, then there is a set, there is frustration, there is discouragement, all of those things come to, come to bear. So if we, we can see that this is where the author is at this point, he's kind of under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, he's chomping at the bit to really wanting to get into this Melchizedekian priesthood. But he can't because they're not ready because they've they have, they they haven't progressed. Okay, moving on. He says that you have become dull, which really speaks to a state of laziness. So they they've become lazy in hearing. Well, what does that mean exactly? They've become lazy in hearing. Are their ears blocked up with wax so they can't hear? What, what does that mean, that they become lazy in hearing? The Berean Christians. Yeah. They were diligent. And I think, and I think there was a time in every believer's life where they were really zealous and desirous, it was a top priority in their life to, to be in the scriptures, to learn about what the scriptures say, you know? And, but things happen and over the course of time, the tendency is for that to wane. You know what, what I compare it to? I compare it to when, when, it, when the Jews were moving through the wilderness and they were starving, right? And God sent them manna. And they were like, man, this manna is great. You know, it's like uh, La Fiorentina's pastry is so great. But then after a period of time, it's like, you know what? We're sick of this stinking manna. We want meat. Right? And so that, that seems to be the tendency. And it seems to be 
something that is tied to the flesh, to the corrupt flesh. But does that need to be the trajectory of God's people? Yeah. Are they locked irrevocably into that trajectory? They're not. You're not. Right? I'm not. And so it is by by an act of will and intention that we keep from getting to that place. Because it initiates a slide that's imperceptible. It's imperceptible. One day you wake up and you're like, man, I haven't looked in my Bible in three months. Huh? You know? So it happens. Okay. So you have become lazy, lazy of hearing. You know, you don't, you're not, you're not intentional about putting yourself in a place where you're hearing God's word. Either you're reading it on the page or you're hearing it being spoken. Symptom three, Hebrews 5.12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. So the issue was is they had moved to the place where they, their growth wasn't stunted. They were, in fact, in a state of regression. What is the, what is the, the theological term that we use to, to convey that in a state of regression? Backslidden. Well, there's backslidden, which is the more mild term. Apostasy, falling away. What was the cause in verse 13? For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. That word unskilled means inexperienced, unacquainted, lacking knowledge, essentially a baby in God's word. Since the Hebrews were forsaking the pursuit of this knowledge, they were not training their perceptive and cognitive abilities to see the difference between right and wrong all across the spectrum of life. They had regressed to infancy in this skill. They were living life at face value, no differently than anyone else. The infant, the innocence of a child is not innocence, but ignorance. Do you understand that? Okay. The author now moves on and gives them the remedy of their condition, but in doing so, conveys to them the accountability for ignoring the solution that he was going to give. So he says, leaving the, the discussion of the elementary principles to move on from the basics. Now this is, this is a, a really jarring three verses, uh, three verses here. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. And this we will do if God permits. So that introduces the possibility that God may not permit that to happen. Right? So I, I kind of worked it out here using, tested you know, this out using propositional logic. And the way it works out is this way, that if God permits the foundation to be laid again, then we will lay the foundation again. So it is possible that God will not permit that to happen again. And so what comes, what comes after that in these verses describes why it's not a given that in some cases God may not permit 
that foundation to be laid again in the lives of believers. Yes. So fundamentally, there is a subset of people who have apostatized if God judges them to be apostates. They're apostates. They're still believers, but God. But they've fallen away. But, but God irrevocably locks them into a state of spiritual immaturity as a sign of judgment, right. as a sign of chastisement. Yeah. Okay. So do they lose their salvation? No, they don't lose their salvation. But what do they lose? Rewards. They lose rewards. And, 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 and the peace, that's right. And the joy of walking in fellowship with him in the here and now. So, so, this is, so this is something that I don't think we probably teach from the pulpit strong enough. But this is, this is a very serious concept. This is, very serious consequences attached to not keeping moving forward in your knowledge of God's word and in the knowledge of his ways. Up to and including God saying, that's it. Where you are is where you're staying. Well, isn't it, doesn't he also, could, couldn't also the judgment be here maybe coming to us? That too. Well, I was just going to say, I think what you're saying too, you, you've disgraced the Lord's Supper and I'm taking it home. Yeah. So, so you you know, it's hard for us. This kind of didn't really click in my mind till about a year, year and a half ago. I said that everything that comes after this, this statement that that the author makes, and this we will do if God permits, gives us the reason why God may not just permit it because it is such an offense, and it's such an affront to the sacrifice of Christ. And this is an affront to the sacrifice of Christ on behalf of believers. Right? Not unbelievers. There's nothing there that you can attribute to unbelievers when you read down through the passage. Everything that's being talked about there is talking about believers. All right. So let's read on. Okay. So... Go on to perfection means to move towards the more advanced precepts of the faith. Perfection means doctrinal maturity, which brings with it spiritual maturity. So what he was talking about there are the six ABCs of the faith. The foundation of repentance from dead works. Foundation of faith towards God. Hebrews 6.2, the doctrine of baptisms on laying on of hands, of resurrection, of dead, and of eternal judgment. The doctrine of baptisms, the Levitical immersions and washings. Baptism of the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. Physical act of believer's baptism. Laying on of hands. Resurrection of the dead. Eternal judgment. All of those things are Christianity 101. Now how many Christians do you know today that you firmly believe are believers? And they are believers who could adequately discourse those Six, eight, those six points. How many do you know? Okay. If you have been a believer for any length, and I just kind of picked an arbitrary time period, but I think three years is a good, a good place to start, you should be able to do this. There are two reasons why this might not be so. You've never had the opportunity to learn them, right? This is a very real 
issue in the church today. That's the failure of the teachers. And two, or B, you've never availed yourself of the opportunities presented to you to hear, learn, and assimilate when these things have been taught. That is your failure as a student, right? That's a failure of discipleship. Yeah. Those who come under category two are placing themselves in an extremely dangerous position and are in fact very close to making an irrevocable decision and choice. The danger, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Something becomes impossible for a specific group of people. This group is identified by the fo following five spiritual privileges given to them. Once enlightened, they've been given life. And there's a quote there from Hebrews chapter 10. It means understanding the truth to the point of applying it. Tasted the heavenly gift. To taste is used as a metaphor for experience. They had real conscious enjoyment of the blessing of grasping this gift in its true nature they have possession of a real of real spiritual life partakers of the holy spirit to be a partaker means to have real participation um, they these were people who had a vital relationship with the holy spirit and tasted the the good word of god and the greek word there is rhema the spoken word tasted again they had a real experience with it real participation and perception. And finally, E, tasted the power of the ages to come. The ages to come is a Jewish idiom which was understood as referring to the Messianic kingdom. They had experienced and perceived this power in their lives. The specific group of people here are believers and believers only. Now I've read commentaries that try and attribute this. They play all kinds of biblical gymnastics to try and attribute this to unbelievers, but it really doesn't wash. It doesn't hold water. Okay, so what is it that would be impossible for believers? Impossible there means an incapacity, incapability, inability. Hebrews 6, 6 says, If they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Okay. That's the crux. Yeah. So, what is that verse talking about? Obviously, you can't crucify Christ again, right? So, what is this referring to? Well, we have to think about the, the whole act of crucifixion. And we have to think about what Christ endured in the crucifixion. Shame and humiliation, right? So when we see pictures of Jesus on a cross, you know, he's got the loincloth on, you know, and he's okay. But the reality is, is that he was buck naked on the cross. And in the Jewish culture of the day, it was considered shameful for a man to even show his legs. So this is such a serious offense. 
of not taking advantage of what God has provided for us and continuing to move forward and continuing to grow in our faith is such a serious offense for the believer because what it does is it, it puts us in the place where we're actually subjecting Christ to shame and humiliation. Again, before the world. Right? Think about it. What are we supposed to be about? Right, but now think about the believer who's a true believer who's obstinate and refused to take advantage of the grace that God has bestowed upon him, right? I mean, we take so much for granted. You know, I was talking about this with, with, uh, with my kids in Omnibus today. You know, we were talking about, we've been talking about the persecutions and we were talking about the whole, the whole uh, issue that arose around the Novatian heresy. So who was Novatius? So under the when the when the Christians endured the persecution, those who were in charge, those who were the bishops of the church, those who were in charge of the church, among others, were were, were told under penalty of death that they were to surrender the scriptures to be burned. Right? Now, it wasn't like it is today, there's a Bible every fifteen feet. You may find a, a manuscript or a scroll every 50 or 100 miles. And so the, the, the big issue was, okay, well, what happened to believers, A, what happened to believers who denied the faith, sacrificed to idols under fear of death, should they be allowed back into the church, right? And then the bigger question is, what about bishops? What about the pastors who had surrendered the scriptures to be burned? We have so much more than them. You know, I broke down, I gave them the Nicene Creed, right? We're studying the Nicene Creed, and I broke it down into foundational, it's foundational truths. I said, now I want you to go home, and I want you to provide scripture and support for each one of those points. And, you know, they came back today and said, oh, I, I got it done in half an hour. I said, okay, how? Google. I said, that's, I, but you know what? Well, wait a minute, you know what? You know what I said to them? I said, you know, when I start doing these studies, I had a table this size with books open on it. Now I can do all that and more on my iPad in a fraction of the time. Let me ask you a question. Is God going to hold you more accountable for that? Yeah. Of course he is. So, so when we take that grace that God has bestowed upon us, and we discard it, we think as a common thing, the world is watching us. And we're subjecting Christ to open shame once again through our bad testimony to him. That's why this is such a serious offense in the face of God the Father that might just result in that individual who goes to that point being irrevocably locked into that place. Yes? That's right. If it's not working for you, why are you telling me it's going to work for me? And that's the sense there 
when, when the author says we're subjecting Christ, we can't crucify Christ again. You're, it's not talking about the physical pain and the death. It's talking about the shame and humiliation that he had to endure in the crucifixion. We don't often think about that. We think about the pain, the physical pain he endured, but we don't think about the psychological shame and humility that went along with crucifixion. Imagine, you know, you're, and, you know, the pictures show him, you know, he's eight or nine feet off the ground, but more than likely he was no more than a foot off the ground. So those who were taunting him, his mother, his friends were right there in front of him. And he's strung up there naked and suffering. This is what this passage is saying. The believer who refuses to keep moving forward will start sliding back. And in that sliding back, there is the possibility that they will slide back so far that God will irrevocably lock them down. All right, let me read on in the notes. Okay, under point D. Actually, let me back up to point C. Why would this be impossible for believers? Since is used to indicate the side-by-side -side nature of crucifying Christ themselves while engaging in all-encompassing apostasy. While engaging in this movement away from God, they are functionally treating Christ as a criminal metaphorically nailing him to a cross through the attitudes of disdain and acrimony at the same time publicly shaming him. This is what God sees. Uh, this is what God sees when believers disobey his command to mature as disciples and take their rightful place in the Great Commission. It is a functional disdain for Christ and an exposure of his majesty to a shame that we subject him to. A believer who comes to this spot is irrevocably locked into this spot. There is no way back. There is no way to escape the consequences that are going to fall into his or her life. We're not talking about salvation here, but about things concerning this present life and the judgment seat of Christ for believers. Moving on, it's all illustrated by the metaphor of a field. Verse 7 says, for the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. Okay, so let's translate this. The earth here represents the believer. The rain here represents that which enables growth. The herbs are the beneficial growth which benefits those who cultivate the earth. Those is a plural demonstrative pronoun more than one person it cannot be referring to God. To cultivate means to turn, fertilize, seed, weed, etc., etc. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, I planted, Apollo watered, but God gave the increase. The earth, or the believer, that produces useful fruit in return for the work that has been invested in them receives a blessing from God to be a share or partaker. God will pronounce a blessing upon these individuals. That should be pronounced, not pronounced. Hebrews 6, 8 now, in contrast, says, but if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is burned. Again here, the earth represents the believer, 
thorns and briars represents harmful, not beneficial growth to those who cultivate. It says it's to be rejected, not approved, does not pass the quality control test. That which does not pass the test is not the thorns and briars, but the earth that produced it. Near to being cursed, not there yet, but in very close proximity. Cursed is the physical and verbal uttering of a curse to lay a curse upon. The earth that has a curse pronounced upon it is burned. The earth that is thus under the irrevocable curse of burning is here representing the believer who has moved away in full-blown apostasy. The burning refers to the physical destruction of what it has produced. In other words, life, a life of misery irrevocably. This is the sin leading to death. Now, is there another passage that we're talking about the believer in burning that comes to mind? Where the believer is tested by fire. 1 Corinthians, I think it's 1 Corinthians, it's either 1 or 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Let me see. Yeah, verse 3.13. <clears throat> now, if anyone, no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, hay, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. Right? So it's not salvation, but it has to do what that individual has invested their life in. Right? Their life energy, the, the life that God has given them. What are they investing it in? It's going to be tested by fire. Right? Okay. All right. Okay, John 1, 5, verse 14 and 16 says, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. If anyone sees a brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. If there is sin leading to death, I do not say that we should pray about that. Well, let's talk about this for a moment. So th this is obviously talking about believers. First uh, John 5, 14 and 16. So what is, what is, what do you, in your estimation, what you know of the scriptures, is a sin that ultimately, if the, if the believer, the child of God, this is that's actually kind of a two-part question here because what we're getting so far is that God may irrevocably lock someone into a position a position of immaturity that may actually take them to the place where they commit sin leading to death as a result of trifling with with the command to keep moving on to spiritual maturity we know that happened in at least one place in the scriptures, right? Multiple times. 
trifling with what? The, the lying to the Holy Spirit. Lying to the Holy Spirit. Trifling with the Lord's table, right? So, again, those admonitions, that admonition is 1 Corinthians chapter, I believe it's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, um, has, is, has got nothing to do with the unbeliever. Trifling with the Lord's table. That is strictly for the believer, <laughs> right? Because if you're an unbeliever, there's nothing about that Lord that, uh, that means anything to you about the Lord's table. That specific admonition is spoken to believers who would trifle with. And that at that time was what called the agape feast, right? And it was just radically different than what we do now, right? Um, but, but what is the primary attitude that we're supposed to have when we come to the Lord's table, right? I mean, it's been taught, you know, what what is our attitude supposed to be? What what is it that what should we be doing when we come to the Lord's table? Examining right, ourselves. E examining ourselves. Right. Okay. Th that's that's the requirement that we're examining ourselves. Right. The unbeliever does not have the capacity to do that. Right? He doesn't have the capacity. You might as well be reading Green Eggs and Ham to him. He's not going to understand it. Right. So. There is sin that leading is leading to death. So I think what the author here is getting at, that this is a serious thing. And from what I've seen in my 34 years now of walking in the church, I often wonder how many Christians are irrevocably locked into this position. They have been placed, locked in a, in a, a state of spiritual immaturity as a result of them not taking seriously the command of Scripture to keep grow to keep growing in the faith. Now, obviously, not everyone is called to be a preacher or a Bible teacher, right? So God gives the ability, the commensurate with the office that He calls the individual to. Okay, but I have to ask myself a question: when, when uh, you know, when a when someone's been a Christian for forty years, and I say, "Tell me about the Trinity." Three and one and one and three. The Trinity is three and one and one is three. Okay. And that's a good place to start. Now explain what you mean by that, right? So there, you know, this is a serious thing, and I don't I don't I think I have failed in my ministry at conveying how serious that is, how, how serious an offense it is, you know, um, that this is a big thing with God. And I, and I expect and I suspect that many believers are locked into a state of spiritual maturity as an act of chastisement by God for not taking this command seriously and to keep learning and keep growing. Yes. But you made a statement that should make even you and me sick because there is no end of learning. No. Right? So we study and study and study and we're still, I mean, we're still saying, oh, 
And that's okay. And that's okay. And that's okay. You're, you're tired. And remember, even Jesus called the disciples away to a deserted place to rest for a while during their ministry. But there is a difference between a need and a season of rest and a complete moving away from it. Right? There's a radical difference there. So, I mean, you should, we all should be able to look back on our lives and say, let's say, you know, I'm not as far as I'd like to be, but I certainly am farther than I was a year ago. I mean, I can honestly say that there is never a time when I don't sit down and read the Bible or listen to a sermon on my phone that I don't learn something new. Right? And you just keep downloading information. You just keep downloading information. And just at the right time, the Holy Spirit will cause it to pop back out and to connect dots about one of these questions that you've had that you've never really had the time to look into. You know, that's the way the Spirit works. This is a serious thing. I, I'm not sure that I've succeeded at this. You know, in my over 20 years in pastoral ministry, and so is it that, that I didn't deliver it properly, or is the fact that it seems that we are in the Laodicean age, and in the Laodicean age, many believers who have trifled with God's word have been, as an act of, as an act of chastisement, been irrevocably locked into a place of spiritual immaturity. So... You are all here in hearing this. Those who are, you know, the few who may watch this on the video are all hearing it. The question is, what will your response be to it? What should our response be? Okay, let's finish this up. This is, and the conclusion. Oh, it's my little Latin 2 students. And Latin 1. Okay. This is the choice that lay before the Hebrews. They had not crossed that line yet, but they were very close. Once you start down the road towards Christ, there's no turning back. Hebrews 10.38 says, Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. If they returned to Judaism, they would, be func they would functionally be treating Christ with contempt and subjecting him to shame they would be irrevocably locked into a state of spiritual immaturity. And according to Fruchtenbaum, this comes from him, they would be partakers of the 70 AD judgment that awaited Israel. Whoa. Yeah. I, re I read that in Fruchtenbaum. I said, wow, I never thought about that. You know? Or they could press on, keep right. going, keep growing. We're talking about people Yeah, the specific... The specific recipients of this letter. This is pre-fall of Jerusalem. I think this, this letter dates to around 65, 67 A.D. So roughly, I think this letter was penned the year the siege of Jerusalem began. Jerusalem was under siege, I think, for two years or three years before it finally fell. Or they could press on, keep going, and keep growing. 
This is the choice we as Christ people must make. To fall to the self-deception of thinking that the Father will tolerate a stagnation which always leads to regression is indeed insane. As the passage tells us today, to do so is indeed to treat Christ and what he has done for us with disdain. This, I am convinced, and this is my personal opinion, is the sin leading to death. A life of misery, spiritual blindness, and finally shame before the Bema seat. And there's the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13 that I read. But, so that's a pretty dour warning, but he closes on a positive note, right? Verse 9. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. So while he puts the hammer down on them, he closes it with a note of encouragement, right? And then, you know, he's going to get back, he's going to move back into the discourse of the order of Melchizedek. Yes? I don't know if I have an answer. No, it's not just for their day. So there's, there's a warning here for us, but not necessarily that outcome. No, that's specific to them, but there is a, I mean, there is an application, right? When you think of, so to the, to the Hebrews that this was written to, it didn't mean they were going to lose their salvation. It just meant that they would be destroyed right. along with their fellow Jews in the judgment of 70 A.D. But they would... And they would forfeit their lives, right? Okay, so now let's see if we can transpose this in some way to us today. If we fall to this point, we become subject to the world's version of the judgment of 70 AD. Does it mean that we become subject to what? Yes. Well, yes. So, in terms of today, you go back living with the world, you're subject to all the diseases and everything in the world. Bingo. Bingo. That's it. I mean, think of the things that, because of your association with Christ, you have been spared. Right? All of the diseases. I mean... You know, I mean, look at this stuff that's going around now. We're seeing these plagues. I mean, first of all, I don't really think monkeypox is monkeypox. <laughs> I happen to think it's smallpox. Oh, that would make sense. You know? And that's what they're vaccinating people with is the smallpox vaccine. <laughs> so I have, you know, if you're older than 60 years old, I think you have natural Im some natural immunity because we all received smallpox vaccine when we were children. Did you're young, you're too young, or did you I get? Well, I guess 
You're not 64. I'm, I was born in 64. Oh, okay. <laughs> so you have, so we have some residual immunity from smallpox because we were vaccinated as children. But when did they stop vaccinating for smallpox? I think it was, so, I think it was somewhere in the mid 1970s. I got a question. Yeah. Yes. I mean, not smallpox, but monkeypox. Yes, we'll call it monkeypox. Yeah, whatever. So, I mean, is, is typically in the past, was it homosexuals getting smallpox? Or was it everyone? No, no, smallpox was a disease that r had wreaked havoc on mankind so for literally thousands so of years. So why, why is it mainly in the homosexual community that this disease was? Well, because that's where it started. So monkeypox was actually... There was a, a good book that was written probably 20 years ago about, uh, it was called The Hot Zone. I don't know, uh, David Ludlow, one of those guys, who wrote this book called The Hot Zone. And he talked about, it was a, a true, true story about an accidental release of, um, I think it was Ebola, from a testing facility in, I think it was Reston, Virginia, monkeys that got out. The the movie the yeah kind of like that right the movie the outbreak was based upon that but he was getting into how crazy the whole biological thing had become that there were actually scientists who had engineered a version of smallpox that they called monkeypox and they actually put the formula of how they engineered it on the internet so that anyone now could get their hands on monkeypox and engineer the vaccine to be transmissible to humans, which it now is, <laughs> right? So, so yeah, I mean, that was predominant in, in the homosexual community, as was AIDS, yeah. all of those things. You know, if you are, I mean, you know, if you are someone who is addicted to alcohol, chances are you're gonna have problems with your liver. You know, so think of all of the things that having a relationship with God and his word has spared us. That doesn't mean that we're going to be spared diseases, we're going to be spared the sorrow of the world. No, but there are some things. There is a clear benefit, you know, in having that relationship with God. But those who fall away to the point, I, I think there's, I think there are though, there's like a, a, uh, not a trajectory, but kind of like a, a space where you can be locked into a state of spiritual maturity, but you're just going to be a baby Christian all of your life, right? And then there are those who keep going and just become apostates. And as Doug says, they're basically, they have thrown off Christ. They're living in a, the ways of the world. They're relying on all the methodology of the world to cope. They're still believers. Why are they still believers? Because salvation has nothing to do with you as an individual. It comes purely as an act of God's grace. Right? And it's ultimately not up to me to judge you whether you're a believer or not. I can't judge that. I can, I can assess the way that I should act towards you based upon what I see. But I can't ultimately decide whether you're a believer or not. That's not my 
my judgment call to make. So I think there is a, I can't, a, a span. I'm trying to think of the right word there. It's, it's not a, a what? A spectrum. a spectrum there. Thank you. That's it. A spectrum there between those who are irrevocably locked in spiritual immaturity, but they're believers, and to the degree that 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 uh, they have taken the time to amass some knowledge about the basic principles of Christ, that is somehow protective of them, right? And they never move to the place of full-blown apostasy, so right? Well, isn't that called the spiral of degradation? The spiral. Well, that's Romans chapter one. Yeah. The spiral, but that's that was on a human. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, is talking about the spiral of degradation at the species level, all of humanity, right? But you're right, there is the spiral, uh, there is that, there is a, yeah, there is a spiritual counterpart to that, and um, there was an excellent book written years ago, um, and it dealt with the issue of sexual sin, um, at the altar of sexual idolatry. Uh, and it was written specifically for men who struggle with sexual sin, pornography, blah, 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 blah. And what it does is it takes that spiral of degradation in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, and it sees that it can also be operative in the flesh, in the individual flesh, that, that and in the believer, that God will let that person go, you know, and uh, and you know um, Neil Anderson, in his books, The Bondage Breaker, so on and so forth, always says that God will not step in to help a person until they've come to the end of themselves, right? Stepmother, the stepmother. Only after Paul gave them the business end of his correcting stick, <laughs> they were thinking themselves gracious and cosmopolitan right. for, and non-judgmental for tolerating that within the church. But the point is, they gave, Paul handed them over to Satan to destroy the flesh, but he was still saved. Yep, end. yep. Okay, so this is a serious thing. Uh, and um, I don't know how else to say it. I mean, there's no stronger way to say it than to let God's word say it. This is an issue. And I often wonder, I know we're in the Laodicean age of the church, and this seems to be the predominant ruling thing in the church today. I mean, there are pockets and, you know, there are believers who really take the command to keep learning and growing seriously. But it seems that they're in the minority. I'm just going to be honest. It seems that they're in the minority today. Yes. the struggle <laughs> and therein lies the struggle right is because you'll you'll look for opportunities to input that kind of information into them or you know you'll make opportunities right like small groups 
speed groups, things like that, right? Classes like this, your Sunday school class. You do your best to make, provide those opportunities and to encourage people to partake of them, but you ultimately can't force them to do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, you've experienced the kind of the Im the impact that that has on you as an individual. It's painful and it's discouraging. It's like you know what? I'm just gonna go home and watch Netflix. It's, you know, it's painful in two ways. One, I put in all the work, right? And I'm happy that these people are here. But down the next week, people who weren't here are lost. Yeah. You, you know the benefit in all of that is the benefit is is no one learns more than the teacher no one learns more than the teacher in preparing to, to, to bring God's word and that's the blessing that's the blessing right there you know the, the blessing in the midst of the discouragement but it, it's you know and I've, I've often for years I've said well is this a pride thing you know, am I, is my pride hurt because people aren't coming? And it's like, you know what? No, that isn't it. I just feel bad for them. You know, they're, they don't know what they're missing, you know? And I don't seem to be able to convey it to them in a way to make them understand you're missing so much, you know, the, the walk with God. Yeah. I know enough, you know. I know I enough. Think, well, I think people confuse doing things for spiritual growth. Oh. I think people confuse, oh, well, I went to church and, and gave time here. I'm too tired to go back to Bible study. I'm too tired to do this. But I'm at the church doing things for God. Yeah, and isn't this a scenario that actually plays itself out in the Gospels? Yeah. Mary and Martha. Yep. I, you just, and she was rebuking Jesus. Yep. Don't you care that I'm doing all of this work and my sister is sitting there listening to you? Yep. So she was so locked into her, her deception that she was in a righteous place that she was actually gently rebuking the Messiah. Don't you care? that I'm doing all of this work by myself and my sister, my lazy sister, is just sitting there listening to you? But you're right, right? And, and doing is important. It's critical. But you do based upon what you learn. You see? Not vice versa. Because, you know, you, you can, you know, and there are all these books out there, you know, Six steps to a healthy family, 15 steps to a healthy marriage. And you know, you can read those books and you know what? You can just as easily substitute the name Buddha for Jesus. You can put Buddha in there. Because the reality is, all of those principles are taught by the Buddhists. They're taught by Muslims. Right? So... So this, it's specific about the Holy Scriptures. It's specific about God's Word to us. 